You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey. Welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. Today I am sitting down with Alex Martinez. He is the CEO and co-founder of Intrinsic Medicine. He is a former Silicon Valley corporate lawyer turned biotechnology entrepreneur. His thorough understanding of the industry and areas for improvement in parallel with his own patient journey inspired him to make a public health impact and seek novel medicines for broad patient populations that have been previously underserved by the traditional pharmaceutical industry. Intrinsic Medicine is a therapeutics company leveraging human milk biology to transform irritable bowel syndrome and other gut-brain axis disorders, which I am so fascinated by. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I am so glad to have this conversation. And I'd love to, just getting started You know, we talk about the gut microbiome here and there. I throw it around like it's a term that everybody understands, but you know, I, I never get tired of hearing more about the gut microbiome. And I think there are a lot of people out there that still don't really have a good grasp on what is it and what is this bacterial foundation within us and, and why do we care? (laughs) So maybe you could address that. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as an overview, human beings are actually an ecosystem of organisms. Um, You know, we have our own cells, but we also, in a ratio of somewhere between one to one to as high as 10 to one, have other organisms present with us who have, you know, in many cases co-evolved with us so that we obtain mutual benefit from, from coexisting. And I think a lot of a lot of uh, what people think about when they hear microbiome is the gut microbiome, because I think that's the one that's most central to our understanding. Um, it's also certainly the largest, and so you know there are as many as you know forty trillion bacterial cells in in the microbiome. Um, so that's a ton of genetic information, which is is part of why they're so important. Um, because they can produce molecules that modulate our own biology. But these these cells are actually part of a dynamic ecosystem. And it's not just bacteria, it's bacteria, there's fungi, there are even viruses that live in the microbiome. And all of them form an ecosystem. And that ecosystem is dynamic, it's responsive to how we think, what's going on in our environment, what we're putting into our bodies, it's um it's is a is a very bidirectional environment where it can have an impact on our health on our thoughts on our emotions and then vice versa those can also reach back into the microbiome and change the diversity of the, e- the ecosystem the characters involved in it um as well as what they produce and so um you know the microbiome in you know the past five years, five to seven years, really has catapulted itself into our our understanding of human health because it's long been associated with various diseases. You can you can clearly see a change in the microbiome; it's correlated with a disease. But very recently, for the first time ever we have seen microbiome transplants 
in patients with diseases. And so all of a sudden, we now know the microbiome can be causal to disease. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's a entirely new intervention opportunity to make people's lives better. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. I mean, this research is a new frontier, you know, I mean, I think we've known the impact of bacteria. I mean, we've had antibiotics for a good amount of time now, you know, modern medicine, we've had antibacterial soaps and sanitizers and things like that. So we've long known, you know, oh, let, let's kill off the bad bacteria, but you have a different way of explaining. It's not just about bad bacteria, good bacteria. There's a lot more going on there than good or bad, right? Yes. And Aaron, that is a, a phenomenal point right? Because we are all steeped in germ theory. And germ theory <laughs> says, oh, a bacteria, it's bad. Let's sanitize. Let's absolutely remove it. And so my perspective is there's no morality with, with <laughs> microbes. Um, context is what matters. And so as with wildlife ecosystems, more diversity and having that web of life that that's what promotes the overall environmental health, or in our case, our health. And so it's really understanding the context in which a bacteria could have a detrimental effect on us that then can help us appreciate, well, how do we restore it to its balanced, its equilibrium point where it is a helpful participant in this environment. Um, and you know, one of the ways, you know, we can also think about that is a lot of the bacteria that people call, think, think of as bad today, I would like them to, to offer that they think about these as a keystone species. Mm. And, you know, a keystone species in, in ecology is it's, um, it's a species where they can have a disproportionate impact on the overall ecosystem, even if their populations at small numbers. Um, there are some data suggesting that H. pylori might be a keystone species. And everyone knows H. pylori. They say, oh, that's a peptic ulcer disease. And that's what happens when it's out of balance. Mm. So it's not necessarily that it's bad. It just needs to be in balance. Correct. Absolutely. And, um, and I think that's, that's also where we first got our understanding of the microbiome as a therapeutic target, as a therapeutic avenue of treatment. And it's in people with um, recurrent C uh, clostridium difficile. Uh, yeah. Uh, which, uh, how familiar are, are you with C. diff, Aaron? Not super familiar. So you share whatever you want to share. <laughs> um, so it, it's something that for, for us that are aware of it, um, it's, it actually, when there's an outgrowth of this bacteria, if you're over age 65, you have a one in 10 chance of dying mm. from diarrhea that it causes you. And the scenario in which it will outgrow is usually one that occurs after antibiotic use. Wow. And so what happens here is the C. diff outgrows the rest of the ecosystem and it becomes imbalanced. And then we can have such catastrophic, you know, impact on human health. Hmm. So, so those are really kind of the, the leading edge areas where then people have received 
those microbiome transplants, they're actually called fecal matter transplants. It's literally taking someone else's microbiome and uh, transplanting it. And those have shown promise in late stage clinical studies and they're actually going to the FDA for approval for their ability to reduce this reoccurrence. Now, do you, and this might be a controversial question, but do you think that the overuse of antibiotics has caused more things to be out of balance? Like you said, with the C. diff um, example, and, and is it, are we seeing, even though antibiotics have been very life-saving in many cases, is too much of a good thing too much? Absolutely. And, and, and that quick response to uh, something that, that was approached as potentially co- controversial. And I think it's, <laughs> it's uh I think it's very clear that, you know, there's certainly, you know, transformative molecules, um, but there's a clear association with changes to human health. And, um, and, and we even know that, um, you know, there's, for example, with um, the, the latest um, cancer drugs, immuno-oncology agents transformative, right? They, they can cure cancer for about 20% of people. So, what what's the difference between those people microbiomes there's a very clear microbiome signature between mm. people that respond that don't respond and what's even more striking is the data shows that if you have antibiotics within 30 days before going on, on those amino oncology agents it essentially is a death sentence they're not going to work wow it's, it's nearly, uh, you know, within eight months, I think a hundred percent of people do not respond and ultimately succumb. But if you have not received antibiotics, all of a sudden your odds are, are much improved, you know, about 50, 50 of, you know, persisting, you know, for as long as, you know, nearly five years. So, that, so you're, you're spot on Aaron, that, wow. you know, I think um, we need to rethink about how we use antibiotics, you know, the, the, the right intervention at the right moment, um, but also understanding that we need to then fortify and rebuild our microbiome immediately after. I, I want to touch back on this whole idea. You mentioned something a little bit ago about gut brain access disorders yeah. and, you know, things like autism spectrum disorder, Parkinson's. There was recently a new, there's some new paper that just came out about Parkinson's in the microbiome that I found fascinating, but things like schizophrenia, even anxiety or depression, these can all be affected by bacteria and, and that bacterial balance in the gut, maybe creating inflammation. So can you break down how that works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's, what's really neat here is that we actually have two brains. Um, you know, several, you know, some of your listeners may, may have heard about sort of the, the little brain or the enteric nervous system that's, that's in our gut. It's actually directly interfacing with the, the microbiome, with the immune cells. And then it has a sort of direct line to our brain, uh, you know, via the vagus nerve. And so um, this is a, a bi-directional system. Um, uh, and it, what's really fascinating here, especially for you know, disorders that we previously think of as mental health disorders, right? You know, that's, that's us still following Descartes, right? Dualism of mind and body. Mm-hmm. Well, guess, mm-hmm. guess what? There is a high-speed internet line between mm-hmm. the mind and the body. Um, and so what we're beginning to see is that, you know, the sort of intestinal inflammation, it drives, um, you know, changes in behavioral phenotypes. 
And, and this makes a lot of sense um, because in the context of inflammation, a behavioral phenotype called sickness-like behavior is activated. Hmm. And it is beneficial in that context. You know, you have an infection, you're inflamed. Guess what? You do want, you do become antisocial. You do, you know, want to, you know, isolate yourself. And that's actually Mm -hmm. a hallmark of a sickness-like phenotype. But you can understand that if that inflammation was chronically activated, all of a sudden, that's how you would be in the world. And that that, that would shape your experience. Um, And so... Now we're seeing uh, around a whole host of, of other disorders, the associations. And so what's next is, can we intervene? Um, and then to also talk you know, in particular about some of the disorders such as Parkinson's that, that, you, that you had mentioned, constipation actually seems to show up in Parkinson's patients first. Hmm. So, so it's almost like, the canary in the coal mine is the gut itself, and and with with autism, there there also is um, the number one comorbidity of autism is gastrointestinal. I think mm. about I think about eighty percent of people with autism have you know you know constipation. About forty percent of them have a diarrhea associated with that. So there's clearly something there, and you know all it takes is to expand are the lens at which we're looking at these disorders. Then, you know, from the head to the whole body, and, and then it's it's clearly visible. Yeah, yeah, no, it is visible. It's just, I think it is really hard to wrap our head around this when we have been told, like you said, that <laughs> it's not connected, that it's all in your head, or these mental, mental health issues are just mental. And it's not, you know, I mean, it, it really is for some people difficult to catch on to this. And I think that more and more practitioners are aware of this, but it's just still, even in the public, there's this, well, you know, maybe there's a genetic component, maybe it's genes, maybe it's in the genes, but we do know that lifestyle plays such a huge role. Absolutely. And, and I think that maybe that's, that's part of the bridge. You, you said something extremely important. Maybe it is, maybe it is the genes. The question is who's modulating those genes. And the microbiome is capable of modulating epigenetics. Ooh, okay. Let's get into that. That's good. <laughs> so let, break that one down for me. Yeah. So 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 basically, you know, we we are we are, you know, there is no genetic destiny going from you know genes to protein to you know behavior. You know, there's no fatalism there. We have we have a gene, and you know, it's, it's almost like a choose your own adventure. There's multiple different, you know, protein types that it can create and it's, and it's dynamic. It's, it's not, it's not hard coded. And that makes sense because we're supposed to be operating in, you know, in, in an environment, we're going to have different stimuli and we want our genetic code to make sure we thrive. And so it means, of course, there's going to be subtle differences in how, um, those genes are expressed to um, to best help us navigate our life. And what's really fascinating is, so the gut bacteria, you know, we're separated from them by a single layer of cells, which is unbelievable. The intestinal epithelial cells, the lining, it is, you know, that really is kind of the, the thin pink line, you know, that separates mm-hmm. us. 
um, from trillions of sort of alien organisms. And the vast majority of them have, have evolved mechanisms to communicate with our body. And so, Aaron, you probably know a lot about gut permeability based on, on the work you do. And so most of us, unfortunately, are walking around and that layer, mm-hmm. that thin layer has some pretty big gaps in it. Yep. And so it means that these gut microbes can actually enter our body where they shouldn't be. But they also are producing a whole host of other molecules called metabolites. And these metabolites, they're drugs. That's, there's just no other way to, to talk about them. They are in fact drugs. They're entering our body and they literally can change our gene expression and change how our cells function. Yeah. And I think when you mention even just the way that one cell layer <laughs> that we're all just, and that can get that cell layer can get broken down by so many things too, you know, and, and we're very sensitive. Our bodies are extremely sensitive to any of the physiological and even emotional stressors that can break that down. So can you share a little bit about why, um, or how the, the gut lining can get broken down and permeated over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, diet is, is a a huge one, um, that I think we can all think about, um, you know, as something that we can control high fat diets, they absolutely have create kind of a, a local inflammatory reaction, which then creates gut permeability, which then leads to systemic inflammation. I think one of the most important ones is the one you mentioned, which is emotional stress. Psychosocial stress is it's it it really directly affects the gut, you know. And I even think about what we say, you know, you, people having a gut feeling or mm-hmm. you know, butterflies in their stomach. All of a sudden, there's more substance to those phrases and colloquialisms. Um, but yet yeah, emotional health is really one of the, one of the biggest one that per- perturbs the system. And, um, uh, you know, in part, it's again, an, an adaptive mechanism when you're in sort of that fight or flight mode, one of the first things you, you do is actually have an urge to defecate. There's mm-hmm. an article that wasn't there an article that just recently came out that said, Hey, there's a scientific reason for why you need to go to the bathroom when you leave your home. Huh? I have and, not seen that one. That's I need to look that up now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really fascinating, hmm. and uh, and it's exactly what you're talking about because, it, in some ways, there's like a bright line we walk over, and then we don't we don't appreciate all the psychosocial stress that's hmm. on us, right? Where we have our our siloed home environment, we're going out into the world, and guess what? You know, it's it's not socially acceptable to just go relieve yourself behind whatever tree you see fit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's very limited opportunities. They're going out into the world's got to work to socialize. And that in and of itself it almost is a bright line where our brain communicates to our gut and we experience a sensation. So mm-hmm. spot on with, with what you're saying um, that that thin line is extremely dynamic uh, and fragile but so that everyone has hopes is also something that we can restore very rapidly with, um, with, you know, positive intentions and positive lifestyle changes. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember reading somewhere that um, we can completely heal our gut lining within, I think three days that the cells can create turnover in our, but I mean, that's three days without stress, without toxins, without, you know, all these other things that trigger. Um, and so I think that that, the fact that we're learning more and more about this, and, and I want to get into what it is that your company is doing that is changing the way we look at treatments, because I know we have people suffering a lot of people suffering from quote IBS, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And usually IBS is a diagnosis. In my experience, I've understood it to mean, well, we don't really know, but your bowels are irritated. Like that's it, <laughs> but we don't really know why. And we don't really have a good treatment, but here's some things that might could help. That's what I have been seeing. So tell me what you've been seeing and, and what are some options that, that can help? Absolutely. And that's very consistent with, with um, how we see IBS being recognized today as a disorder of exclusions. <laughs> and that's a challenging place to be as a, as, as a patient and a person where, you know, you have a high amount of healthcare and sometimes very invasive procedures. And at the end of the day, it's, you don't have all these other scary things. So th this is where we're going to, to, to yeah. label it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually somebody that has, has dealt with, you know, IBS symptoms for you know, mm -hmm. 30, 30 years. And, and so I, I certainly appreciate, um, you know, where other people are and, um, you know, so I think the, you know, the opportunity for, for IBS, which in, is the lead indication that intrinsic medicine is developing a drug for is I, I had actually previously worked at a company we're focusing on, you know, rare genetic disorders, very important work. Um, but then I'm sitting there with IBS mm. and I, you know, uh, who's, who's developing drugs for, you know, for, for, for the other disorders that, you know, most of us will experience. Yeah. Something. Yeah. And I realized that no one was, you know, the, the research and development, uh, resources were really being allocated for sort of the monogenic, uh, diseases, it, essentially a case of, you know, going where the tools and where the tools work. As you, as you mentioned, with IBS being a diagnosis of exclusion, there's not a genetic basis. How do you develop a drug for that? And so for that and other gut-brain axis disorders, we said, let's use evolutionary biology as the lens to find the right compounds. And the, the first check mark that we wanted to, um, to, to uh, knock off was compounds had to be safe because for things like IBS or other GBA, you know, think, think about something like autism or, you know, mm -hmm. the person may not be able to even primarily give consent, you know, safety was absolutely paramount to us. And then the compounds needed to work on sort of the different causal drivers of the GBA disorders. So the microbiome, also, you know, those, those drugs that the microbiome actually produces, and then also modulating the immune system, because we know they're all interconnected. And so by using evolutionary biology as a lens, I looked at the most vulnerable uh, stage of human life, which is infancy. And I was looking for compounds that existed there that were absent elsewhere. Mm. And so we looked at human milk and found that there are oligosaccharides. So think about these as fiber. That's, that's what they are. They're a prebiotic. 
and they are the largest non-nutritional um, solid component of human milk. And, and there's between five and 15 grams per liter. And what's, what's, what was striking about this is, you know, you and I do not have enzymes to break these sugars down for calories. So what do they do? And, and why do mothers make such a huge energetic investment to, you know, allow their babies to get them? And so then when we looked at the science of the compounds, we realized that they really were already optimized to be gut-brain axis disorder uh, treatments because essentially um, how they occur in the natural context is they create a healthy microbiome for the baby. And in longitudinal studies, you see that babies that are you know lucky enough to, to breastfeed and receive large quantities of these completely different health outcomes. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause I mean, when you mentioned that, I'm like, yeah, and we know that one of the reasons that we do have an increase in lack of microbial diversity is the decrease in breastfeeding for many people and decrease in even vaginal births can contribute to that as well. And so the fact that, yeah, human milk is pretty amazing. So it's the prebiotic fiber, the oligosaccharides that you are using to create something that is beneficial to any, any age stage of life? So great question. And what's very unique about these is that the, the biological benefit appears to be conserved across hmm. life cycles, not just infants, but also adults. And what's unique about this is there's been, been about 200 of these distinct oligosaccharides characterized to date. And there's actually many more different structures. And it appears that each one of them has a very specific role. So, you know, my lead candidate is actually 30% by, by volume of all of these. So it's a really foundational oligosaccharide, which appears to be critical in um, maturing an infant's gut. Hmm. And that includes reducing gut permeability, yeah, creating you know a sort of tolerogenic immune environment. Um, it's a preferential food source for what we consider some of the most beneficial bacteria, the bifidobacteriums. And so that's kind of really how we how we've thought about this. And then of course, um, since we cannot isolate this from from human milk directly we have to use synthetic biology to produce these at scale. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's actually an important aspect of, of how we're trying to create different types of, of new therapeutics, because I also want to produce these where they're financially accessible, right? Mm -hmm. you biological toxicity and financial toxicity is sort of equally bad <laughs> yeah. because at the end, at the end of the day, if your drug costs too much and it's causing psychosocial stress, guess what? You're not going to receive the benefit mm -hmm. of a GPA drug. So it, it's really thinking about this very holistically, um, which, which has made it a, a really fun and inspiring project. Yeah. And, and what are the aspects of, um, you mentioned something early on about um, something with immunity, supporting yeah. immune function. Can you explain that, how, how this would work for that as well? Absolutely. And I, I think it kind of links back to sort of like the beginning of our discussion, which is there's no good or bad 
the, the immune system is a wonderful thing. Inflammation is a wonderful thing. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all here. Exactly. We all mm -hmm. exist because of inflammation. Um, and so acutely inflammation, you know, key component of our survival, but it needs to resolve. And I think what we have is we actually have an epidemic of inflammation non-resolving and becoming mm -hmm. chronic. And then it, it causes all these, these other conditions. And so these oligosaccharides um, um, are really important. I think about them as almost like training wheels mm. for the immune system for, because an infant's immune system is highly biased to be pro-inflammatory, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, in our ancestral environment, you know, pathogens, infectious disease are the primary source of infant mortality. So it absolutely makes sense. But if that inflammation persists, baby doesn't grow. Um, it, it's in a lot of different, it's in a lot of, a lot of trouble. And so these oligosaccharides actually can come in and they can actually reduce the pathogenic load. Um, these are very special oligosaccharides. They actually, um, some of them serve as decoys. So pathogens actually bind to them instead of to the baby's gut lining. So that's, that's been sort of reducing the primary driver. And yeah. then on the other side, they're telling, they're, they're increasing regulatory immune cells that then can tell mm -hmm. the rest of the immune system the threat is over. Let's go back to growing. Let's 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 switch from survival to moving towards thriving. Mm. Yeah, and I think you know when I think about IBS and all of these the gut brain disorders that you've mentioned, I I think that the body doesn't know the threat is ever over, and the yeah. body's always overly activated for protection. You know, inflammation is a protective response, but if we never get to healing, then it's just going to keep being inflamed. Right. And so what this would do would help to create a healing environment for the body. Precisely. Yeah. You, you, you absolutely nailed it. That's, that's so interesting. I've never, I mean, this is so, this is so fun. So tell me where, where are you in the process with this and what does that look like? Absolutely. So for our lead program uh, in IBS, we're actually focusing on the constipation dominant uh, uh, subtype initially. We're planning to initiate our phase 2B clinical study um, mm -hmm. early next year. So we're, we're really excited about that as a you know gold standard placebo controlled study. Mm -hmm. uh, we're testing the same endpoints that the FDA actually requires for approval of these drugs. And so we are extremely excited about that. And then we'll be advancing a second program, which is actually our primary anti-inflammatory program into the clinic as well next year. Oh, wow. And what would, using the same, you know, background with the um, oligosaccharides or something different? It's actually a second oligosaccharide. So it, it's, um, it, it is a distinct one from the first program but it is the oligosaccharide that appears to be responsible for the majority of the anti-inflammatory effects. Okay. And, and that one we're actually going to be developing for um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Oh, wow. Because, you know, we really only develop our drugs for uh, disorders that they can be transformative. So we really want to differentiate on, you know, safety, tolerability, and efficacy. So mm -hmm. really parameter. And we want to find patient populations that really have not been served well. And so it's, it's a, it's the largest subtype of juvenile idiopathic arthritis, 
that does not have an approved branded drugs because the risk benefit is not there for those mm -hmm. children. And so we think that there's a real opportunity to, to fill a true on that need. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's tricky to get something approved. I mean, it's tricky to get something approved anyway, but for kids, I feel like that's, a, that's a couple hurdles ahead is what it seems like. <laughs> it, it is. And, 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 you know, we're stacking our deck, uh, by starting with compounds that were designed to uh, benefit infants and, and, and children. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So for you, you know, I mean, cause it sounds like you've been digging into this for a while and this is something that you're passionate about. What have you found to be the most exciting part of this research in, in the last few years? What has maybe given you the most hope or excitement to where we're going? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the what I, I'm seeing this field rapidly evolve and evolving, you know, much faster. So, you know, for example, in you know 2016, there were publications and they were talking about, hey, the microbiome, it's there, it's important, mm -hmm. but we only have associations. Um, and then mm -hmm. here we are in 2022, and it's all of a sudden you can you can modulate. The, the the microbiome as a therapeutic target and you know we're about to see the first wave of of the, the fecal matter transplant you know microbiome uh, uh sort of engrafting drugs being approved but now the leading edge of science is saying hey it, it, it may actually be what the what the the bugs the microbes are doing um more so than who they are so we're actually looking at the metabolome and so really understanding the drug-like molecules, the microbiome's producing that were always designed to modulate our own biology. So I, I feel like this is a very truncated understanding of this. And, you know, the part that I almost speak against myself as a, as a drug developer is the data indicate that we can do something about this today that each one of us can do something about that today. And I think that is the most exciting aspect of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about the progression of how things have changed. I mean, I think I started getting into just the whole gut brain connection, gut microbiome it was probably 2014 when it was still a little bit of quackery, right? Like it was there, but it was, it felt very alternative. And yeah. then, like you said, it does seem to be about 2016, we saw more and more going, okay, wait a minute, this is a thing. And now here we are, it very much is a thing. We have tons and tons of research. I mean, I remember listening to a podcast years ago, they called leaky gut so-called leaky gut because they weren't sure. Well, now we have so much research about enhanced intestinal permeability. And like you said, but instead of going into like good bacteria, bad bacteria, it's like, what, what is the bacteria doing and what can we do to support that balance. So what would you say off, just off the top of your head, what are some things that we can do in the here and now to support the balance of bacteria in our gut? Great question. And I, I think one that, you know, you're, you're going to know the answers. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so I think that the nice thing is the exercise that, cha that changes the, the microbiome. Mm -hmm. We can look at the microbiomes of people who are sedentary versus people that regularly exercise. You can kind of match them for every variable you want and exercise can be the one. And you can, you can change the uh, 
the microbiome ecology to the one that's more associated with health. So um, the other aspect that I think, you know, I, I'm working myself on is that 95% of US, you know, adults and, and children do not have the recommended intake of dietary fiber. We, so in some ways, our microbiomes are experiencing a famine. Yes. Because I agree. That's Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's a really, a, I think, a low hanging opportunity. And, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm not a healthcare professional. So, you know, seek your own advice. But um, as a person, I can look at and say, you know, let me track my dietary fiber intake from whole foods. And I think that's kind of aspirational where we want to where we want to go, because certainly there's there's also an entourage effect. Uh, you know, in particularly with other, you know, phytochemicals and other nutrients. So I think that's kind of the optimal approach, um, you know, as I strive to reach, you know, that 30 or so grams of dietary fiber. And then if there is a gap, there's, a, you know, a great number of prebiotic supplementations. And the recommendation, you know, on those is to, you know, ingest only as much as will address the gap, because we also don't want to overshoot. Right. And, and I'm sure you're very familiar with things like SIBO and things like that, mm-hmm. which happen when people go out there and they take probiotics and prebiotics and all this stuff in a sort of, you know, in a, you know, more haphazard manner. And mm-hmm. so, so again, balance, I think you said it really well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to ask you my favorite question to ask my guests. The name of the show is sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? I think to recognize that just as our, you know, microbiome is, is, you know, an ecology that everything's fractal. We're also part of an ecosystem. And once we think about our place in that ecosystem and we understand the influences the environment has upon us, you know, we can be much more gentle with ourselves and much more constructive in how to improve our lives by virtue, by viewing all of us as interconnected and um, that the, the opportunities to, you know, improve ourselves will also improve our ecosystem and that'll come right back to us. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think that that's so true. I think so much of life is reflected just in the makeup of the human body and how it works. So I think that's, that's spot on. All right. Well, where can people um, find out more about what you're doing and the studies as they progress and stay up to date with all of that? Wonderful. So intrinsicmedicine.com and we we have info boxes and, um, you know, please sign up and we'll, we'll provide updates on the clinical studies um, if people want to participate in those, and then just general updates as well, because one of the things that we aspire to do is to to create value today for, yeah. for people who need. Yeah. So you still you're actively um, still getting study participants too. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. This is such good information. I love hearing about what's happening in the world of the gut microbiome, and um, this has been so much fun. So thank you so much for for being part of the show and taking the time to sit down and and just discuss the gut. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze, and I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. 
For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.